You've probably seen the recent documentary on Louis Armstrong. It's fascinating to me. He was born in 1901 in New Orleans or New Orleans. I've heard him say both. His mom would make the best of their poverty. They use what was considered throwaway pieces of fish and chicken to make delicious foods. Fish heads in particular. She would prepare them with care. She called them Cubian, displaying a beautiful display of food. He said the young boys and girls would want a, a bite of his food at school. As a young boy, he would get coal for five cents with Jewish families, and he would then go to the red light district to put the coal on the grates. And this is where he was exposed to the trumpet, to the bands that would gather on the corner and play. In fact, he wrote, I've got those coal cart blues. I'm really all confused. I'm about to lose my very mind. It always worry, worry me all the time, drawn from his experiences of poverty and hard work. At age 13, he went to a boy's home and Mr. Davis organized a boy's band. He picked up the trumpet and Mr. Davis was shocked that he could blow the high C above the staff. He would break every barrier imaginable, even taking his music behind the Iron Curtain. He changed the musical landscape. They say because of him, we have rap, hip-hop, rock, country. His riffs were unheard of. But what fascinated me the most was a little commentary drawn out of that, that jazz brought two dissonant notes together, a natural note, the white key, and then the flat note, the black key, and played alternately, it's, this doesn't sound good to your ears, but played together, jazz created a quarter note, a harmony underneath those two notes that in and of itself wasn't even actually there, but somewhere between the discord of the natural and the flat. I thought, isn't that grace? Pre-fall, God's kindness and benevolence, but grace is something given in our need, and we had everything in his presence. We have his law. That's the natural note, if you will. But then comes the fall and sin and suffering and trials. That's the discord. And what does God do through the natural note and the flat note of the discord of suffering and sin and guilt and shame as he provides this undercurrent quarter note, if you will, of grace that actually meets the requirement of the law of God, but then provides as a benefit for the need of the sin and the suffering. Would we have grace without the dissonance of the two? It's fascinating that even in the discord, our old church fathers, the patristics, would say that even to define sin, you have to negate it from the good. Say, well, kindness, the good, unkind, it's a negation. Or justice, unjust or unjust, is a negation. And we keep going with this. So in some sense, the discord actually presupposes and points corruptly so backwards to the cord. But then grace comes in. And provides the benefit. Well, if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I think Paul is going to describe this in gospel terms. And we'll look at verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. This is God's grace and weakness. But he said to me, that would be the Lord Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a profound description. We're going to look at four, what I'm going to call brief and simple descriptions of God's grace that's fit for the context of weakness. Four brief and simple descriptions of God's grace fit for the context of weakness. And they're, they're meant to be brief and simple because in difficulty, trial, and suffering, when it's really magnified, you're not going to be able to take a lot of time to work through these four descriptions. And they're very simple. It's God's grace is a gift. Sufficiency, God's sufficiency in his grace. God's power and God's glory. God's gift, God's sufficiency, God's power, and God's glory. And it all revolves around Christ. But maybe it's worth painting a little picture of the context here. I think it's helpful that in the context of chapter 12, Paul has said that he's had this vision, whether in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know, but he's taken up into the heavenly paradise. The commentators that I've looked at would say that's actually a mark of the prophetic office where someone, the prophet, Ezekiel, the heavens are ripped open and they're standing there in the heavenly assembly and they're commissioned. And this may be that, it could be something unique, but the fact is he had what he describes as surpassing revelation and experience. And he says that he heard inutterable words. His, if you will, his FM antennas were not on. He didn't have a glorified body. How in the world is he supposed to take this in? It was a commissioning. He got that. I mean, this is huge authority and commissioning behind his office of apostleship. But lest he would glory in the flesh, lest he would make that experience substantial and his mark of fame, God gave him, according to chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, a thorn in the flesh. He says, a messenger of Satan, and messengers are messengers. They're ones who carry it and deliver a message. So with that in mind, then, you look at Second Corinthians 5 and 10, and you get this idea of what the messengers of Satan, what they what their message was. And in chapter 5, verse 12, they took pride in appearance and not in the heart, so it was external. So they began to judge Paul's ministry very externally to look at the apparent ministry rather than the heart of the ministry, the heart of the gospel. In chapter 10, verse 7, they looked at things outwardly. In chapter 10, verse 2, they... They regarded us as if we walked according to the flesh. They used fleshly standards, things that the world would promote, things that you would get in your latest pop culture books for good ministry. In chapter 10, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, they put weight on the personal presence and said it's unimpressive. His speech is contemptible. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12, they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. So they develop their core group and use that as their foundation to judge Paul's ministry. He's just preaching the gospel. He's not, he's not keeping up to the standards of true ministry. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 16, that we don't even do that with Jesus, do we? We shouldn't. Chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, that is, if you look at Christ outwardly, what do you see? What Dawkins says is this guy in the armpit of the universe in Israel, among the rocks, dying as a Jewish criminal 
on the cross. That's what you see according to the flesh. What kind of marketing program is that? That's a despicable program. And that you would bind your hope and life and salvation to that criminal on the cross. That's the flesh. And Paul says, we don't regard Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. And then dropping down to verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's to look at Christ, not according to the flesh, but from the heavenly perspective. He was hanging as a criminal on our behalf. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's the perspective that God gives. So Paul is saying that's in confronting this message of the flesh. He says, I want to give you what the gospel is all about. Look at this, look at Christ. But there's also, they were judging him in light of his lifestyle. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 basically says, hey, we're going to go through suffering. And one of the marks of Christ is that he came in poverty. He took our sin and guilt to the cross to make us rich with his righteousness, right? That's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5. So 2 Corinthians 8 9 says that's what he's come to do. And you better believe it. That's how he's going to work in your daily life. He's not going to use the glorious things. He's going to bring you into places of suffering and in 2 Corinthians 8, to use you in your suffering so that you can magnify God's grace and bring his riches through your suffering. That's your Christian walk. So if he's going to save you with this manner of grace coming down to fulfill your need, he's going to grow you in this manner. So that takes us to the first brief and simple description of God's grace. It's fit for weakness. And we find it in verse 9, my grace... My grace, it, it should go without saying that grace means gift. If you look up charis or caritas, it's, it's a gift. It's almost redundant. Grace gift. But just as it's helpful in Romans 5, 8, we're, we're told that God demonstrates his love for us. Right? We have First John, God is love. But Romans 5, 8 says, let me show you. It's God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think one helpful way to see grace as gift is just to look at how Paul paints the picture of grace as a gift. And if you look again back to 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which I've referred to, I think you get a beautiful description of grace as a gift. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, heaven's bounty, right? Yet for your sake, there's gift, your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, so that would be Christ taking our guilt, shame, imputed sin to his account. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. And then I think another key text is we've referred to it already twice. Second Corinthians 5.21. This is my favorite verse. Everybody's got to have a favorite verse, right? <laughs> For our sake, the gift. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Grace is a gift. And so we do say things like unmerited, undeserved favor. But it's bigger than that. It's Christ coming down, trading in his heavenly status for the status of a sinner, a criminal, to take our sin, guilt, shame, death, suffering, and through that to give us the riches of heaven. And then to join us with him in his riches as the ascended, raised Lord. What's fascinating is if you look at the contrast between chapter 12, 1 through 7, he had this experience in heaven 
where he heard inexpressible utterances. He saw the glory of God, like Isaiah. But do you know what he's saying here? Is that what is of surpassing worth is actually God's grace. That quarter note. You see, this is the note that the angels are looking at. The angels are in the glory of God. But what they're most amazed is that God would come down in his poverty to bring his riches. And this for Paul, he says, I could not translate the glory cloud experience. And I could not tell you these beautiful, they're inutterable words. But I will say this, that it was so important that God humble me over that and show through weakness the priority of his grace that he is saying grace is greater And it is that which the angels are stooping over to look at. That Christ, that the Son of God would condescend through poverty and suffering to raise us up. That is the greater glory. That is his gift. Oh, it's so hard for us as believers to see that. We love the external glory. And those messages are powerful. And Paul says, I'm not going to take that approach. I'm actually going to glory in my weakness to exalt the gift of God in Christ. There's a second aspect for us in our suffering. Not only is grace a gift, but it's also his sufficiency. His sufficiency. And I I just love this. I mean, you see this back in chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. That's beautiful, right? My grace. What is the grace? Well, it's the gift. That goes without saying. We see it described in Christ's ministry for us. But it is In fact, sufficient because of grace is Christ on our behalf. Therefore, it is sufficient. It meets all our needs. And notice this, it is for you. Satan's greatest temptation in the garden with our forefathers, our great mother and father in the garden was that God is against you and he's depriving you of something. And grace says, no, I'm for you and for you in my sufficiency. And as we've seen in Second Corinthians 5 and 8, it's Christ himself, God himself for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And if that's not enough, notice the end of verse 9, that the power of Christ, I want to focus on Christ, Christ may rest upon me. There's another description of sufficiency. We ask, well, what does it look like? Love is God sending his son. Grace is Christ coming in poverty to make us rich through his poverty. What does sufficiency look like? It's a word that means to tabernacle, to tent over, to cover, to rest, to be at home. God has come at home in our hearts through Christ's grace gift. And he is our sufficiency, our home. Now, if you're in our language classes, you would go, I would like to look at that word tabernacle and you would see the garden event where Adam and Eve are hiding behind leaves from the awful wrath of God on the day of the Lord. They're called the spirit of the day, the wind of the day, the storm of the day comes. And God could have judged, but what does he do? Christ takes the, the animals, right, slays them and covers them, tabernacles, tents over them. We can go to Abraham and see Christ coming down to have dinner, if you will, with Abraham and Sarah and making the promise of Isaac. He tents, he tabernacles. We can see him in Exodus, right, coming down um, at at Mount Sinai in the burning bush to say, I'm going to lead my people. We can see him at the great Passover event where the angel of the Lord comes down to judge Egypt and cover. The idea is to cover, 
to protect, to hover over Israel. We can see the glory cloud coming down and leading them through the Red Sea, judging Egypt, protecting, hovering, sufficiency for Israel. These are the images pulled up, taken up in this term to rest. And there is no greater resting than Jesus Christ in John 1.14, right? Where he has come down and tabernacled among us so that we see his glory, the fullness of grace and truth. Truth, law, discord, sin, guilt, shame, suffering, grace to meet the need. Christ upon us. That's sufficiency. Thirdly, we see also power, his power in verse 9, and we referred to it, but I just want to pick up on that power, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Beloved, that's beautiful. Power? The power of heaven? Oh, bigger than that. The power of heaven, it's God created the heavens. He created the angelic magistries. He himself is infinite and eternal and wisdom. Omnipower, omni-wisdom, omni-glory. That's that power. But what does this power do? This power comes down to rest, to hover, like a beautiful glory cloud or a hovering bird, right? The power of Christ, Son of God, what does he do? He comes down and rests. What's rest? Well, it means it's, the power's not in me. I'm not grabbing onto it. I'm not holding onto it. I'm not, I'm not doing any works. It's his power on my behalf. Guys, this is, this is a beautiful picture of the work of the gospel. Transcendence and eminence. Height of heights and lows of lows. You know, it sounds blasphemous when I pray, Lord, you're the highest of heights and lowest of lows. And we mean that in Christ. He went to the lowest of lows for us. He took hell for us. Praise God, I won't have to face that. I won't have to go to the lowest of lows, but he did it for me. This is rooted in the gospel, the height of heights and the lowest of lows. And this glorious power on my behalf comes and rests, comes at home. What do we do? Nothing. We receive by faith. What does that mean? The old Reformed church said, empty hands. We offer nothing in my hands I bring. He just tabernacles over us by his spirit, provides the clothes of his righteousness citizenship in heaven, our debt paid. That's power. This is the gospel. Or you could say is the third note. That third note, the natural note, God's truth, the discord, the need, and he provides this undercurrent provision of grace. This power is amazing if you just traced it out in Second Corinthians. I'm going to pick on chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure... In earthen vessels. So treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels was stuff you, 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 you did your business in and you took it out to get rid of it. You don't put your treasures in your toilets. And these aren't like our toilets, ivory, right? They're easy to clean. It's stuff sticking there. I just, if you have dogs, you know this stuff. I won't go into details, right? It, there is earthen vessels treasure in that and this is this is the gospel way christ condescends taking our human nature the flesh with its weakness and suffering and then at the cross imputed sin and guilt to our account so that we trade statuses 
And Paul says that that, that's the ministry of the gospel then. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 7, that the passing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That's its goal. It's of God and not from ourselves. It gives him glory. We read earlier in our scripture reading from 2 Corinthians 6, where he says, dishonor and honor, right? In, In the midst of our shame and suffering, yet our hope. How do the two work together? Well, how does God come down to us in the person of Christ and walk among us and die for us and raise for us? But this is the ministry of the gospel, that he takes these treasures in earthen vessels, and so he takes our weakness and our suffering and uses it to promote his grace gift for his glory. And that brings us to the fourth. God's glory, the glory of Christ. We see this when he says in verse 10, for the sake of Christ. And because it's for his glory, then I'm content. Because the fact is, you want your joy and glory attached to God. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's most wise. And so when it's for his sake, then it's for our sake. And we saw that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin. We saw in 2 Corinthians 8.9. For our sake, he became poor. That's the gift. But when it's for his sake and our sake is tied to his sake, that's, that's where the joy comes in. Not only is he glorified, but our joy is magnified. My friend, dear friend, turned me on to a show called Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat. And I, I watched an episode, and I, I thought it was interesting because I've balanced food, balanced pH. You need the acidicness, but balanced by the saltiness, of course, with fat and heat. And I, I cleaned pools for six years in California going through school so we could care for the family as we had a young, growing family. And I know you do not mix acid and chlorine, which has the salt principles. And I was very nervous getting in a wreck and it blowing up. You die. It's sear your lungs. You're gone. But somehow putting that into the water with the right balance, you can swim in it and enjoy it and drink it. I saw it in the food where it's balanced and it's most savory. And I thought, that's what this is about. His, his truth, his law. And then we have this discord of sin and suffering, which he allows, but he's not the author of, we are, but he uses it for his glory and provides grace. And this becomes a savory meal for the glory of Christ and our enjoyment in Christ. It's for his glory. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So in the midst of suffering, remember, he, he uses it. He overturns it. He comes down into it and then magnifies his glory and grace through it. And he does it because his grace is a gift. He does it because his grace is sufficient. That is, he rests upon us in Christ because his power is magnified through the weakness as he rests upon us. And it's for his glory, for his sake, and our joy is attached to him. If you've followed along with Tolkien's work, the Silmarillion, it's the prelude, the intro to the Lord of the Rings series. And Tolkien shows us the beginning of the Tolkien universe as he has Eru Ayuvatar, the god of Tolkien's world. And he begins by having him create the Ainur, these angelic figures of whom is created Melkor. He's the satanic figure. And Eru alone has the power to create life 
And Melkor can only corrupt and twist the discord. Eru creates the universe with a great song, a note, a chord, a theme of life. But Melkor plays a second note, a discord. And some of the angelic creatures follow him. And Eru, the god of Tolkien's universe, smiles. And the Ainur, the angels, they're shocked as Melkor's note gains the upper hand and plays louder. Eru plays a third theme, beautiful and sweeter than the previous two, but this theme cannot be broken or overcome. And still, Melkor opposes the music of Eru. So finally, Eru, Yuvatar, the god figure here, stops the music and he speaks. And the Cimmerillion, this is what we have. Then Yuvatar spoke and he said, Mighty are the Ainur, he's angelic, and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know and all the Ainur that I am Iluvatar. Those things that you have sung, I'm going to show them forth. You've played a discord. I'm going to let it play. That ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me. Nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. I thought, yes, you know, it's not great, perfect theology there. Find all of its source in me. And yet it's getting at something, God's sovereignty over all things, that he would allow even a discord to carry out. Because, again, it's a negation of the true and the good and the beautiful. And in so doing, he magnifies his glory by providing a redemptive note, a third note, to provide underlining grace and give himself all the glory. And that's his ministry. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace in Christ. Just increases our heart, makes our hearts swell out of love for him. But it is hard when we get into the grind and difficulties of life and when we're just swayed and preached at by the world to glory in the flesh. It's so hard for us to see your glory as it's displayed in weakness and suffering through the poverty of Christ so that we might enjoy his riches. We've enjoyed them definitively by promise. We're declared right with you. You have definitively and forever clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus by faith and Christ has borne our sins and suffering to the grave and turned them inside out through his resurrection and ascension. But remind us too that this is the way you work in gospel ministry as well. You use our weakness to magnify your glory, to grow us, to allow us to see that Christ is of surpassing value. And we know that in our very death, we will go through this same principle. We will draw from this life. We will leave this life behind. There will be no promises on this side of the planet that could give us any hope when our bodies are wasting away and our inner man is about to leave the tent behind. And the only encouragement is the note from heaven and the redemptive note particularly that provides grace for our sin and provides hope in Christ Jesus. So may we be faithful to that message and may we find comfort and encourage one another with this message of grace and weakness. In Christ's name, amen. Have a beautiful Lord's Day.